Thank you, choir. One of those ways of lighting that candle is the shoe boxes that we send out so that people can hear and see the love that people have for them and the desire for people to want to share the gospel. Thank you, Judy, for your testimony, and we can't wait to hear what you have to say. Before we get started today, and I promise you we'll get out on time, this will be an abbreviated sermon, okay? And, uh, yeah, people are laughing. (laughs) I know I don't do anything abbreviated, but uh, uh, Philip is not here today, uh, but he uh, received this from his New Testament professor this morning, sent it to me. I want to share it with you. And he received this, his New Testament professor received this from a pastor that he knows in Ukraine. He said, Dear all, please pray specifically for the situation in Ukraine. Oradea, my city in Romania, is located 200 uh, kilometers south of Ukraine's southwest border. And the Baptist churches here in northwest Romania have been organizing for a while to receive refugees, although the situation is much worse in northeastern Romania across the Carpathian Mountains where tens of thousands of refugees have been entering Romania for the past few days, not only from Ukraine but also from the Republic of Moldova, our neighboring Romanian state. It says, we are doing quite well. Many of us have lent our apartments to various churches who are in charge of the refugee reception efforts and the Romanian government has been very supportive of all the refugees who want to travel to Western Europe countries or directly to the USA. Those who want to remain in Romania will be given the right to settle here as long as they plan to stay. Just praise that we know what to do as efficiently and and as possible. And of course, please pray for this horrible conflict to come to an end quickly as possible. We are fully aware that God is in control, but we're trying to help the best we can given the circumstances. Thank you for praying specifically about this ghastly situation. Also, please pray that we remain steadfast in all possible scenarios. Blessings to you all from a pastor by the name of Corneliu. Folks, we do need to pray for the situation in Ukraine. One of the things that I want to just speak, you're going to get two sermons real quickly today, uh, just just two, uh, and they're going to be short. We want everyone to please be careful what you hear and what you see and what you read concerning the prophecy people who have come out now in tremendous force that are propagating that this is the beginning of Gog and Magog, as mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. If that should be the case, then we understand that Putin, the leader of quote-unquote Gog and Magog, will be assassinated, uh, hit in the head, and then he will come back to life, and then he'll march on Israel, according to some of the prophecies that are out there. Okay? I myself am not a believer in that kind of thing. I want you to, to use discernment when you hear things coming out like this, we even had uh, Glenn Beck in, in one of his interviews that came out lately of a guy who wrote a book called Operation Joktan, who is a fellow that was 
raised in a Jewish home and converted to Christianity and believes that Ezekiel is talking about modern-day Russia. Where in the world do they get those kind of things? That literally, literally was given in, uh, and stated in, by a fellow by the name of Gesanius who lived between 1746 and 1826. And he came up with a theory because it's used in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It says Rosh. It talks about that, the word in there called Rosh, uh, talking about the prince of, of Gog and prince of Magog. Folks, understand something, that these prophecy people or experts, as they call themselves, will say this means Russia because Russia means, I mean, it sounds like Russia. Rosh sounds like Russia. So therefore, they've linked Gog and Magog to this prophecy as being all about Russia. But when you get into the Hebrew and you understand the Hebrew behind this kind of thing, it basically means, Rosh means chief prince. And what is happening in Ezekiel, he's describing the chief prince or ruler. In fact, the word Rosh has been used in the scripture in the Old Testament over 600 times describing an individual, a chief ruler, someone who is a head of a place. In fact, they even call the high holy day of Israel, of the Jews, is Rosh Hoshana, Rosh, same word, Ezekiel, Rosh, meaning what? High, chief, holy day. And so understand something. When you get into these kind of things, you will hear all kinds of stuff that's, that, that uh, is translating. This is, this is Gog and Magog, and this is what's happening, and the end of the times is coming upon us, and we're all, you know, uh, the rapture is going to happen, and all sorts of things. But I just want to just show you just real quickly, just listen to this. That throughout the centuries, since the time of Christ, different ones in different centuries had their opinions and their theories about who Gog and Magog was. And listen to this. In the 4th century, it was the Goths. In the 5th century, it was the Moors. In the 7th century, theologians were saying it was the Huns. In the 8th century, they said Gog and Magog is the Islamic Empire. In the 10th century, the biggest thing of Gog and Magog were the Hungarians. And in the 11th century, it was the Turkish-speaking tribes, uh, the Mongols in the 14th century and the per persecutors of the Lollards were there in the 14th century. They were Gog and Magog. They had three different ones in the 16th century that were really prevalent. They were the ten dispersed tribes of Israel, the Turks and the Saracens, the Mohammedans, and the papacy of all things were Gog and Magog. In other words, they believed that Gog and Magog was Rome. Okay. In the 17th century, it developed into the Pope in Spain. But there was also a teaching out there that Gog and Magog, y'all ready for this? Was the native Indians of America. Okay? But in the 20th century, it's now evolved into a political leader in the land of Russia. I bring that out just to, just to let you know that there have been opinions about who this was 
But if you stick with Scripture and you stay with Scripture and you understand some of the things that the Old Testament are presenting, Gog and Magog was going to be a, a, a leader who was going to come and they were going to be used against Israel at that time. When you begin to look at Ezra and you go back to the book of Esther, if you would compare those books with Ezekiel 38 and 39, you are going to see some parallels that those things occurred and happened in those centuries when they were written. So we need to be very, very careful about what we hear and about what we understand and don't get ahead of ourselves to be able to say that this is all now leading into this, this place to where everybody is, needs to be aware because the rapture is going to happen and Gog and Magog are going to come against Israel. Be careful with those kind of things. In fact, folks, if you really take the word Russia and you put it into modern-day Hebrew, it doesn't spell Rosh whatsoever. You know what it spells? Rusia. Hmm. Rusia. That's Russia. doesn't have Rosh there. In fact, Netanyahu was standing at a podium a few years ago, and, you know, across the podium, it had the word Rosh across the podium. Why? Because he was the chief guy. It was him. It said Rosh Netanyahu. And so he was the chief guy. That's the basic meaning of this. But understand something, folks. In, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you have all kinds of things. They're talking about a warfare that was done then. And if you read through it, I won't take the time this morning to read through those things. But they used bows and arrows. They used weaponry, talking about battles that were going to take place. They were going to use weaponry there that was common to the time. However, prophecy experts now say bows and arrows are missiles and missile launchers. How they get this, I have no idea. Because they scream loudly and say, we interpret prophecy literally. But when it comes to that, no, they don't. And so be careful, okay? Uh, when it talks about horses there in those chapters, do you know they, they interpret that as horsepower? Missiles, missile launchers, horsepower, chariots are tanks, according to our prophecy experts. Where does it say tanks? Where does it say these things? It's not there. And so just be careful when you hear these things that are out there. I just wanted to warn you as your shepherd uh, that you use discernment. You think through these things and uh, see what really is going on. Remember, we did a whole series on Matthew 24 before talking about Jesus is speaking about those times. He was speaking to his disciples. When these things happen, when the abomination of desolation takes place, and it did take place, and it was in AD 70, and it happened there. So please read those things carefully. Um, these things sell a lot of books, they're intriguing. Uh, but they may not just be true. All right. First sermon. Second sermon. Romans chapter 10. Please turn in your Bibles there. I promise you we will, we will get out of here in a timely fashion. Okay? We are working our way through Romans. I was encouraged uh, 
ma'am, what is your name again? It's what? Judy. No, Judy. Charity. Charity, that's right. Charity is with Judy. I was telling her what I was preaching on, and she said, man, that's great. My pastor took two years to get through the book of Romans. I said, we're about a year and a half, So, and we're in chapter 10. So that was encouraging. Maybe I'll finish in one year and 11 months, but uh, that was encouraging. But we're in chapter 10. Let's get there. We're looking at the first few verses. We talked about this last week, but I want you to look now. It says in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desires and prayers to God for them. Paul is passionate about his desire for his Jewish brethren to be saved. He said, My passion, my prayer for them is God that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, And seeking to establish their own. They do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is... To bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. And in your mouth. And in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Real quickly, this whole passage is dealing with righteousness four different times. It's mentioned just in verses 4 through 6. It's a righteousness that Jesus Christ accomplished for us. This is what he is speaking. It's a righteousness that we must have in order to get to heaven. We don't get there on our merits. We understand that. We as Baptists, we as Christians, we understand we cannot earn our way unto heaven we have to have a different kind of righteousness and that righteousness must be received by faith this righteousness is a perfect righteousness a perfect justice if you can think of this way dr stephen lawson describes it as an unbalanced scale think about this that when man is weighed in the balance and understanding with the weight of his sin That scale goes downward with the weights of sin there. But when Jesus Christ comes and righteousness is applied to the heart, what happens is the scales go up and you begin to see that what happens is that weight of righteousness with Jesus Christ is in his righteousness outweighs, takes away basically those sins that we've forgotten and we've been given his righteousness. He sets the scale himself. He is the one who says, I am righteousness. Righteousness needs to be from me and it's a righteousness we must have if we're going to stand before a holy God on the day when he calls us home. We have to have that righteousness. If not, being a good judge and a righteous judge, he must punish sin. And it must go away from him those who are unrighteous. 
So we have to have a righteousness. But here in verse 5, this is what he is, uh, verse 4, Paul is saying this, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end. You want a point number one? The end. That's it. The end. Righteousness has been completed. Now, understand this. Folks, this does not mean that the moral law has been completed. We are to obey the moral law. There are still laws that we adhere to as a society. Thou shalt not murder. Those things are still established. God's moral laws, his ten commandments, they are still in effect. What it means is that the ceremonial law has come to an end. There is no more where we have to take the bulls and the goats and we have to slaughter them. We have to come and we have to present them on the altar. It's not there anymore. In fact, those kind of systems ended in A.D. 70 when there was a complete destruction of Jerusalem. And we know and understand that over a million Jews were killed during that time, that they had the abomination of desolation come in. They flew the flags of Rome. They desecrated the altars. They wiped it away. They took all the walls and destroyed every one of them. They flattened it. It was desolate. That was the end of the ceremonial law. And think about this, folks. That has never been rebuilt to do that. There is not the ceremonies that happen now. Christ was the end of that happening. He fulfilled the law for us. He was our sacrificial lamb. He is our atonement. He did that and put it to our account. That is what Paul is speaking of. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And therefore we have to be forgiven of our sins. And we have to receive that righteousness from him. Folks, understand this. If you were just forgiven of your sins, you still would not go to heaven. If you were just forgiven of your sins, you would just be exposed and standing naked before a holy God. That's it. You need something else. You need to be clothed with something. And that clothing is the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. Let me get it for you. Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world. And even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So therefore... We have to be clothed with the righteousness of God. So what Paul is saying, here's the end. It's been completed. It's been fulfilled. And now righteousness is about to speak. We come to a really difficult passage in here, difficult wording. It says, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. 
He's saying, this is what you're going to do. This is what you need to adhere to. And he moves on and says, but the righteousness based on faith says. You see, this is righteousness. This is what Paul is using as personification and using this kind of words. He says, righteousness is saying this. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is a tough saying. But this is basically saying, look, we're going to work. Righteousness says you can go ahead and work and do all you can. But still, if you have to go up to heaven and bring Christ down or you have to go down to the pit and bring Christ up, all your works are still not going to matter. Because what matters is righteousness is speaking and saying, this righteousness is not far off. This righteousness is not somewhere else located. It is where? Notice what it says, verse, six, verse 8. The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So it's not that we've got to work in order to bring Christ to us. Christ is already here. Now you remember Who is Paul writing to? Jewish believers, Gentile believers. He's writing to people who have already been clothed in righteousness. So that's why he's saying you don't have to worry about the law, the ceremonial law. What you need to understand is he is in your mouth. He is in your heart. He is near. You belong to Christ. You don't have to go anywhere else. That righteousness has been given to you. But what he is saying to us is this. Everyone who confesses with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's he saying? Basically this. The heart was open to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand it from what he said in Romans. He said the, the just shall live by faith. This faith has been given to us. So that we would continue to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is now within us. That word basically means to believe means to trust. It means to trust. It means to surrender to. It means that we are to believe in and submit to and rely on. When you look at that word belief from a biblical standpoint. So we now understand this, that the word is near us. It's in our mouth and in our heart. And if we confess that, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, it says, we will be saved for with the heart one believes, verse 10, and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That dead, dead heart that is dead in trespasses and sins. Dear friends, has to be regenerated. As Jesus said, you must be born again. And as that heart is regenerated by the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word and wherever that seed was planted and you then had your heart open so that you could believe because you were dead first. And then God made you alive. Read Ephesians and you will see that and understand it. God made you alive. Friends, I did did my uncle's funeral uh, this week. And yesterday we were in Arkansas. 
and uh, went to Arkansas to bury him out at this little country cemetery up in the sticks of Arkansas in cold weather. It was cold. We never saw my uncle shiver. You know why? He was dead. I'm not being crass, dear friends, but dead men do not shiver. They don't move. They don't do anything. That's why God has to act upon the heart so that they would believe through the preaching of the word. And what Paul is trying to get to them is this. This is what you already own. This is what you already have. Don't go away from it or go back to a work salvation. Confess what you have. And that's what he's saying. And that's the sermon for today. I told you I was going to get you out of here real quick.